Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would speak to us and that we would hear with ears that are ready to listen. Amen. Please have a seat. Uh, Grab a Bible. It'll be in the pew in front of you. If you need to turn around and grab one from behind you, that's fine. We're all friends. Uh, We're going to hear from God's word, starting from Isaiah chapter 55, reading verses 6 to 13. It's on page 733. Isaiah 55, starting at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. The second reading is taken from Mark 4, starting at verse 1, which is on page 993. That's Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 1. On page 993. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? 
The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it and produce a crop 30, 60 or even 100 times what was sown. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Good evening. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the great privilege we have of gathering here this evening. And we ask that you would speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, on Friday night, the Twitter sphere and Facebook exploded. Why? because the well-known evangelist, John Chapman, died. 82, he was. Chapo, he was affectionately known as, and he'd preached the gospel for 50 years. He was known for the way he proclaimed his gospel message. He was kind of like an Aussie larrikin. Uh, the kind of way he spoke, the stories he told, engaged people both in their minds and their hearts. But what was also true about Chapo was that you had no doubt whatsoever in any conversation that you might have with him that he was passionate about following Jesus, that he was passionate about being shaped by God's word, that he was passionate about being transformed by God's word and that he'd sunk his life deep into God's word. 
It came out in his preaching. It came out in his conversations. Now, he was an ordinary man in some ways, but God had used him mightily to speak his words to people all over the world. A man truly shaped by God's word. And yet we know that it's possible to hear God's word, to listen to sermon after sermon after sermon, to be part of a small group, to perhaps even be a Bible study or even a minister and still not get what God's word has to say. It's possible to miss the point of what Jesus says. And Mark chapter 4 says that this is possible. It's possible to think you've heard the gospel when really you haven't. To think you've understood the truth of what Jesus is saying when it really hasn't penetrated your hearts and hasn't really truly touched your heart. Come with me to Mark chapter 4 and let's look together at what Jesus is saying. You might like to turn to page 993 in your pew Bibles. Last week we saw that Jesus was establishing a new community and that community has gathered about him. And as that community gathers, Mark stops the narrative and he helps us overhear what Jesus is saying. Verse 4, and again Jesus began to teach by the lake. Now we're used to this scene, Jesus has been doing this already. And the crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat out into the lake while the people were along the shore of the water's edge. Now this is not just any crowd. These are huge crowds like teenagers at a, at a Justin Bieber concert. They're pushing forward and they're trying to get close to Jesus. And they're not only just pushing, they're excited like Andrew Errington at a Radiohead concert. Did you hear him talk this week? If you talk to him about anything this week, Andrew Errington is talking about Radiohead. You turn the light on, he talks about the lights of the concert. You talk about the coffee, it's just over and over. Do you talk to him tonight? Overly excited. And that's exactly what's taking place here. As people gather, they're pushing forward, they're overly excited, Jesus gets in the boat and then he starts to teach them. But how does he teach them? Well, in verse 2, we see he taught them with many parables. Jesus' teaching technique is through parables. Well, what are parables? Well, the Greek word, literally translated, means to set one thing beside another, to, to draw a comparison between two things. This is like that, is the way it's often used. Now, it's a very different approach to teaching than what we're used to. Uh, In the West, we're very used to logical ideas. So we, we present an idea, then we unpack that idea, and then we illustrate that idea. Uh, That's not what Jesus is doing with parables. In fact, he's doing something completely different. He's telling a story or using a metaphor that creates meaning, and then only as that has been created is a conceptual interpretation offered. So in in what we've seen tonight, we've seen four soils described uh, and a sower and 
then there's a conceptual interpretation of what is taking place. Now, Jesus used this kind of method extensively. We see in verse 34, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Told stories, illustrated something, then talked about what it actually meant. Now, of course, this pattern of teaching, by its very nature, creates two groups of people. Uh, Those who hear the story but don't really get it, and those who really get it, those who understand what the story or the the illustration means. Now, in Jesus' day, the most common way that that was treated was people would be asked to consider the parable carefully and they'd be asked to uh, contemplate just exactly what it meant. Then they might spend some time with a rabbi um, who was wiser and perhaps cleverer than they were, and together they would think about and reflect on this particular parable that had been told. And of course, if you were particularly smart, you might get the parable ahead of other people. Uh, And so there was lots of discussions going back and forth about how these parables worked and what was involved. Now, on the surface, it looks like this is what's taking place with Jesus. In verse 9 we read, Then Jesus said, He who has ears, let him hear. Or verse 24, consider carefully what you hear. That idea of contemplation and reflection on what's being said. And I think it's true to say that Jesus is advocating in parables a careful listening, a careful paying attention to what he's saying. But in Mark chapter 4, there's this interesting twist. And it comes in the section just between when Jesus describes the soils and then gives his conceptual interpretation. Mark inserts another statement from Jesus about parables, and it's a pretty odd statement. I think we need to go there first and then unpack the parables in the rest of Mark chapter 4. So come with me to verse 10 in Mark chapter 4. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but to those outside everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Now those words sound extremely strange. Uh, It's saying there are those outside the kingdom who see parables but they're basically obscure to them. They can't understand them. Now, I don't think Jesus means here that they can't understand them intellectually. Uh, The parables are not that complicated. I think what Jesus is saying is that they have no personal understanding of the parable. There's no deep conviction going on. In other words, they have not truly heard what the parable is about. So he says that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. They're not humbled by the parables he's using and they don't see the ramifications for them themselves. Indeed, Jesus says, you can't come to understanding his parables by yourself. See there in verse 11, the secret of the kingdom has been given to you. Yes, we are called to a careful listening of what Jesus is saying, but in the end... 
The only way we can understand Jesus' words is if it's been given to us. If he reveals it to us. Now, I think that's actually a wonderful thing. Because it means that whether you're poor or whether you're rich, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you have a high IQ or a low IQ, you can still come into a relationship with Jesus. Because it's he who does the revealing. Remember those words from 1 Corinthians 1. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made the foolish, foolishness the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. God was pleased through the foolishness of what has been preached to save those who believe. Now, in some ways, that's easy enough to comprehend that the parables have to be revealed to us by what God says and does. But did you hear that verse 12? But to those outside, everything is said in parables so that they may may ever be seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, it sounds like Jesus is saying these parables have been told deliberately to make sure that people don't turn to him, to make sure that people don't get it. Now, of course, it's important at this point to take a step back and think about what Jesus is doing. He's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. And Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 comes after a lengthy section in Isaiah That's looking at judgment. Judgment against Judah and against Israel. Oh, sorry, against Jerusalem. The whole tone is is quite gloomy. And it's gloomy because Isaiah is pointing out that despite God speaking to his people over and over and over again, despite the fact that he's spoken his word into their lives, they have persistently rebelled against God. And Isaiah records for us that God has lost his patience. He's got to his limit. And so God has blinded and deafened his people. He instructs Isaiah to keep preaching even though they have been blinded and deafened. He encourages them to keep preaching the good news, but he says he will blind and deafen his people. Now, I guess in one way we can think about this in terms of what Romans 1.28 says. In Romans 1.28 we learn that if we resist the truth, even the truth will be taken from us. Remember those words, since they did not think it was worthwhile to retain a knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. It's like God has his limits. He will give you over if you rebel. He will give you over to not hearing, to not being forgiven, if you consistently resist his word. And I think that's what is being said here by Jesus. Now, it's not all that's being said, 
It's not the whole picture because a little bit later on in verse 21 we read these words. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Don't you normally put a lamp on its stand? For whatever is hidden must be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone hears, let him hear. The purpose, of course, of light is that it lights darkness. It reveals all. And I think what Jesus is saying here is the point of a lamp is that you don't put it underneath your bed, you put it on a lampstand so it lights the whole world, it lights the whole room. And Jesus said, in time, the whole world, my whole kingdom, will see the light of my word. It will no longer be hidden. There will come a time when everything will be seen, when everybody will see the truth, where there will be no more turning people's backs on me and my word. Everything will be seen and everything will be clear. Well, what can we conclude about this, uh, what Jesus is saying at this point in Mark chapter 4? Well, as we think about what Jesus said in these strange words, I think it's true to say that Jesus' parables do create two groups of people. But they're not two groups of people, those who are clever and those who are not. Jesus' two groups of people are those who are able to respond to God's word, respond to his call in faith and understand what it means to be in a personal relationship with Jesus. That's one group of people. And the other group of people is those who, despite God's word to them, are persistently rebellious and therefore have been given over to their rebelliousness, given over to not hearing and not perceiving. Now, it's with that background in mind that we then have a look at the parable of the four soils. So come back with me to Mark chapter 4 and verse 3. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he's scattering the seed, it lands, and so as he scatters the seed, it lands on four different types of soil. There's a path, which is hard, there's rocky soil, there's weedy soil, and there's fertile soil. Now, one of the first things that strikes you about this is this farmer, as it go, um, he goes on to be described, is very, very generous. Now, if you know anything about farming, you know you try and make sure that your seed goes into the good soil. It's too expensive to throw your seed everywhere. You don't really want to throw it on the hard path or the hard and rocky soil because you know it won't grow properly you try and make sure it gets into the fertile soil. But the picture here is of a sower that is extremely generous, that is just throwing the seed out anywhere and everywhere. No matter where it is, he's throwing it out. No matter what the soil is like, he's throwing this seed out. But as we unpack this, we discover that there are two kinds of responses to this sowing of this seed, which we learn is the word. There's the soils which produce nothing of substance, which are unfruitful, and despite the word being sown, they don't produce any real fruit. 
And then there's the soil, which is fruitful, that receives the word, that responds to this seed and grows and is abundant. So come with me as we look at each of these soils and consider how they work. Let's first of all consider the soils which produce nothing of substance, in which the word goes to them and it comes to nothing. Verse 15, let's pick up the explanation there. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Now the sense here is the, word, the, the, the ground is really, really hard. It, it's like the, the um, seed bounces as it lands uh, on this path. It's really quite hard. And I think what is happening here is Jesus is describing that group of people who are extremely sceptical about his words, who really actually don't want anything to do with his words. I guess in our context, it could even be people who have ill will towards God's word. You may have heard some of the debates on radio or TV recently. And sometimes people speak in such a way that makes it sound like God's word is just fairy tales. Just ridiculous. How could you possibly believe, how could an intelligent person possibly believe these words? And you can hear the word of God being absolutely despised. There's a hardness of heart there that does not receive the word, that does not respond to the word in any way except to deride it. And Jesus says, that kind of soil will produce nothing. Satan will come and take the word away. It will never be implanted. Well, in verse 16 and 17, we hear of another kind of soil, a little bit more hopeful here. Others, like seed sown on rocky soils, hear the word and receive it with joy. There's there's an excitement. Oh, wow, this could be the answer. This could be the way forward. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble and persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. This kind of sense that they've grasped the word of God, but as things become a little bit more difficult in life, as things become a bit more challenging and perhaps as the word calls them to be disciples of Jesus and that's hard, this kind of person leaves the word and leaves it behind. Now, sadly, I've spoken to people like this. I can remember one particular woman who had served in our church for many, many years. Well-loved, well-liked, on all kinds of rosters, involved in morning teas and music and greeting people and having people over, just a wonderful, wonderful woman in so many ways. And one day I had a conversation with her. And she said, yes, I I understand that the Bible calls us to place our trust in Jesus. And I remember years ago, I I remember saying, yes, that's the right thing for me. I need to give my whole life to Jesus. I need to place all my trust in him and let him have control of my life. 
I did that. But you know what happened? As soon as I did that, things started to go bad. It was just ridiculous. Friends started to do things that I didn't expect. Other things started to happen in my family. And I decided in the end, I wasn't going to hand over my life like that. That's ridiculous. I needed to control my life. Sure, I believe in Jesus. And sure, I believe he's a wonderful man. And sure, I believe he died on the cross. But he's not going to take control of my life. I saw what happened when I did that. A little bit of growth, but then it's gone in the face of difficulties and persecution. Well, the third kind of seed that is described here is in verses 18 and 19. And once again, there's even a little bit more hope for this seed to produce something that's worthwhile. Still others, like the seed sown amongst the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke it, making it unfruitful. To be blunt, I think this is something that Australians face all the time. Wealth takes our desire away from studying God's word, from letting God's word sink deep into our lives. Oliver James, in his book Affluenza, travelled to seven different countries to research the impact of consumerism on happiness. He wanted to see what kind of link there was. And he found that an obsessive pursuit of money and possessions was not buying happiness. But he also found that the affluenza virus was its worst in Sydney. He said in interviewing locals, he he was completely depressed. He said, it's the most vacuous of cities, the Dolly Parton of the cities in Australia. Now, I don't want to comment on Dolly Parton, but the most vacuous city, a city that pursued happiness through money and possessions. And this seed, as we see it here, is a seed sown where it grows up, but it is crushed by the desire for money and possessions, by the deceitfulness of wealth. And as the desire for other things come in, it chokes the word, making it unfruitful. We're an ambitious lot, aren't we? Affluenza tells us that in Sydney, we're ambitious for things, for careers, for material wealth. And Mark is warning us that that ambition can actually do something to the seed of God's word that has been planted in our lives. It can choke it, making it unfruitful the extra hours you have to work to get that next thing mean that you're not available to meet with others to study God's word. That house that you desire, which means you go further and further away from the local church, means that it's more difficult for your family or those around you to be involved in church. 
And so as ambition drives us, as ambition drives us in different ways, our coming to church, and listening to God's word, our meeting together with other Christians, our reading of God's word starts to be unfruitful, starts to be choked because we're living for those other ambitions. These three soils produce nothing of substance. They're unfruitful. They're three kinds of rebelliousness which God says, actually, I'll give you over to them and your life will become vacuous. It will have no real meaning. The word will not grow in your life. It won't be planted richly. Of course, this parable doesn't only talk about those three kinds of soils. It talks about a fourth kind of soil. A soil that produces something of great substance. A soil which is rich and fertile. A soil which grows things abundantly. In verse 19, others are like a seed sown on good soil. Others like seed sown on good soil. Hear the word, accept it and produce a crop. 30, 60, even a hundred times what has been sown. Now Jesus talks about that a little bit more in the parables that follows. In, in verse 26 he said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. And all by itself the soil produces grain. Or in verse 30, and he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Uh, It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you can plant in the ground, yet when planted it grows and becomes the largest of all your garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. I think of our fig tree out here. Imagine when that was first planted and it was a tiny little thing. And then over the years it's just kept growing and growing and growing. And I think the point here is that it's not something that's instantaneous. It's not like God's word enters in your life and all of a sudden there's a tree. It's like God's word enters into your life and it gradually continues to grow. Gradually continues to grow in that fertile soil. And over years and years and years, a beautiful tree appears. A life of substance appears. A life that says, I love Jesus and I love his word. A life that's like John Chapman's. That when you die, people say, wasn't that person committed to Jesus? Wasn't that person committed to God's word? It's so evident in their life. That's how we can describe them. Brothers and sisters, can I invite you to make it your ambition to be that fertile soil? To let the word of God so deeply go into your life, moment by moment, day by day, month by month, year by year. And when it comes to the end of your life, people can look at you and say, 
that person was shaped by the word of God. That person was transformed by the word of God. They may have not got it all right and they may not have done everything perfect, but that person in their workplace, in their families, in their sports, in wherever they were, you could tell that they were shaped by the word of God, that the word of God had been something that they had sunk their roots deep into. And their life wasn't vacuous. Their life had meaning and purpose. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to have a life like John Chapman. A life that has an ambition to serve and love the Lord Jesus wherever you find yourself. A life that is deeply rooted in the word of God. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and it stirs us up. Father, we recognise that we are just not capable of living the life that you have called us to live, of being that rich and fertile soil. And so, Father, we ask that you would take us into your hands, that you would change us and transform us, that you would help us not live vacuous lives that mean nothing, but be people who are transformed by your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.